Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you all again. Some of you are probably wondering who I am, because you've never seen my face. Uh, this is my third time being with you all, um, but the first time I've ever been able to unmask in front of you, so I'm glad to be able to see you all and to be able to preach uh, this morning. My name is Drew Burdett, and I'm the RUF pastor at Oregon State University. And this morning, we're going to uh, continue our series that we started what feels like a decade ago, on the three chief characteristics of God's people, faith, hope, and love. And I thought uh, I'd get started this morning with a little, a little pop quiz for you. Uh, we're all used to getting a, a physical, I would guess. You know, you go into your doctor's office and your doctor asks you about your health, asks you some questions, maybe they uh, listen to your heart, they do a little blood work, and then eventually they bring you back into their office and they can give you a snapshot of your health, things you should work on, things you are doing great with. And this morning, instead of thinking about getting a physical, I want you to think about getting a spiritual, getting a snapshot of your spiritual health. And so to do that, I want you to imagine going to Pastor Carter's office. I don't know if Pastor Carter has an office, but this is a picture that he has one. And you go to his office, and there he is with his clipboard in hand uh, for your spiritual. He says, I want to ask you two open-ended questions. You can answer these however you want to. The first question is this, how do you think you're doing spiritually? Why don't you think about that for a minute? How would you even answer that? How are you doing spiritually? All right, if you got your answer, the second question he asked you is this, how did you come to that conclusion? Like what criteria did you use to evaluate whether I think I'm doing really well spiritually or I'm actually doing pretty poorly Now, there's a lot of different things you probably thought of as you were trying to determine how you're doing spiritually, but most of us, uh, we fall into one of three categories. We either think about our experiences, we think about our knowledge, or maybe we think about our devotion. Those who think about your experience, uh, you're kind of the mountaintop person. You want to think about, okay, well, do I feel close to the Lord? Do I have, have I had long times of prayer? Do I feel like I'm walking with the Lord? You gauge your spiritual health off of maybe the intensity or the frequency of your spiritual experiences. Now, some of, some of us are, are knowledge people, and so when you thought, how am I doing spiritually, you immediately went to uh, maybe the books of the Bible that, that you've been reading, maybe the theology, you're like, well, I just finished that C.S. Lewis book, I'm doing some memorization on the catechism, I think I'm growing in my knowledge, I'm understanding Christianity a lot better than I did two weeks ago, so I'm doing pretty well. Right? You're a knowledge person, you me- measure your spiritual health by your accuracy in theology and then what you're learning in the moment. So we have experienced people, we have knowledge people, but then others of us look to our devotion. You immediately think about the last week of your life. Did I pray? How many times did I pray? You go back through the spiritual disciplines. Did I read my Bible this week? Did I not read my Bible this week? Now, these are all normal things. These are good categories, and they probably should have a place in there in determining our spiritual health. But my question this morning is, are they sufficient? Like if you're having good experiences and you're learning your new theology and you're very devoted to Christ, is this enough to say like, yes, I am doing well spiritually or not? To answer that question, I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 first. Uh, You can have your Bibles out if you'd like. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning together. I want to read verses 1 through 3 now. This is the Apostle Paul and he's writing to a church in Corinth and he says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, 
I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now I want you to picture with me that the Apostle Paul has his clipboard in hand, and some folks from this church in Corinth are coming for their spiritual to him. And the first guy walks in, and Paul says, can you tell me about your spiritual walk? And they say, well, I don't want to brag, and I wouldn't have brought this up, but since you asked, I've been praying, speaking in tongues. I pray, not like everybody else, but I pray in the angelic language. And Paul says, wow, that's that's a very impressive experience. Um, Can you tell me about your relationships with other people here in the church? To which they respond, this church is such a drag. Like Nobody else gets it. Nobody else is sold out for Jesus like me. Can you believe everybody else is content to just pray in English all the time? And they walk out and Paul says, you know, big F, goose egg. They have failed their spiritual. The next person walks in and uh, Paul answers, asks her the same question. How are you doing spiritually? And she answers, incredible. I figured out last week how predestination and free will work together. Uh, I uh, beat, uh, I won a debate on baptism. Poor guy, you should have seen him run off. And Paul says, wow, that's impressive. Suddenly you got some serious knowledge there. Can you tell me what's your relationships like in the church? And she responds, don't even get me started, right? Everybody is so shallow. They just want to have experiences or cry all the time. Nobody wants to think things through. Nobody is deep like me. I'm thinking about dropping out and just starting a blog of my own. The girl walks out, and Paul starts to sing. Another one bites the dust, right? Puts a big zero on it. Failed. Third person walks in. Same question. How are you doing spiritually? And the guy responds, on fire. Literally. Got martyred twice last week. Got through my, uh, my testimony with 100 people, which is a personal record of mine. And I read my Bible every morning this week before I even woke up. And Paul says, wow, I didn't even know you could do those things. That is incredible. You seem entirely devoted to the Lord. Can you tell me about your relationships in the church? And he says, I don't even go anymore. Everybody is so lazy. Right? They either want to just talk about theology or they want to have good experiences and cry, but nobody gets it. Nobody does the things like I do. Nobody is sharing their faith. Nobody is out there doing anything. Bonk. Failed again. You get the point, right? Paul, in, in this passage in, in uh, Corinthians, he is speaking hyper, hy, hyperbolically about all of these experiences or devotions or knowledge that you can have. And he's saying, even if you possess those, as good as they are, without love, they are nothing. And so perhaps a better question to ask as we think about our spiritual health is this. Am I growing in love for God's people? Not am I there yet already, but am I growing in love for God's people? You see, love is not extra credit. It's one of the chief characteristics of God's people. It's right up there with faith, hope, and love. And this morning, I want us to consider just two things about love. The first is, what is it? The way of love. How does God imagine this kind of working itself out in our lives? The way of love. 
And the second thing I want us to talk about is the power to love. How do we live this way? Let's pray and ask that the Lord would help us this morning. Lord, we thank you that we can come to your word to help us, to teach us, to instruct us. Lord, we need, we need those things. And those things are a grace that you give us. And so, Lord, I pray this morning as we come, um, maybe thinking about our experiences or our knowledge or our devotion, but on the subject of love, we struggle there. We all do. And so, Lord, I pray that you would instruct us and guide us and give us some hope for how we can grow in love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we get started, let's talk about the way of love. What does it it mean that Christians are to be characterized as a people of love? Love is, is one of those tricky words to define. Even Paul seems to have trouble defining it. Look with me at verses 4 through 6. Here's how he describes it. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Right? It's one of those tricky words to define. Paul uses these few verses to kind of lay it out. And he speaks about it both in positive terms and in negative terms. He says, love is this, but it's also not that or that or that or that, right? Let's start with the positive. He says most, the most simple expression of love is treating people with patience and kindness. Love is patient and love is kind. And so as you think about yourself, as you think about your characteristics of how you would describe yourself or maybe how other people who know you well would describe you, are you a person who is patient and kind? Now, I know a lot of us, we think, surely that's not all love is, is being patient and kind. That sounds too easy. But also, who does it sound like? We just read about it in Psalm 103. We see it all over the Old Testament. This quotation from Exodus 34, as God describes himself. Do you remember how he described himself to Moses? He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God who is slow to anger. It's patient. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast faithfulness, loving kindness. Right? God is patient and he is kind to us. And that's why we can say that he is love. Love is being patient and kind. And so as you think about your own heart, is love one of your chief characteristics? Is it your habit to to make room for other people, to see them, to be patient with them, um, to show up, to listen to others, and to be engaged with people in your family, people in your work, people in this congregation? Is Is that your habit? Are you patient and kind? Or... Is your habit to maybe exclude others? Do you see other people as liabilities or as obstacles in the way of your happiness or your joy? Do you, do you measure somebody's networking potential before you determine how much time you're going to give them? Now, as a caveat here, I'm not talking about um, those people who are incredibly toxic or those people who are really easy to love. Because that's where we usually go. We ask about being patient and kind. First, we think about the toxic person, right, who is incredibly hard all the time. Let's not even talk about them today. We're just going to get rid of them. All right? 
Nor do I want you to think about the person who is just the most lovely, easy-going person in the world. Let's not think about them either. Just do the big parabola, the middle range of how you engage with most people in the world. Is it your habit of your heart to be patient and kind? You know, love really is that simple and it's that hard at the same time. We know it's hard because there are a lot of things that can get in the way of being patient and kind. Right? These are all the negative things that Paul lists. Right? He gives a solid list of things that can get in the way of love. I think we can summarize them in saying comparison gets in the way of love. Knowledge can get in the way of love. Self-centeredness, we can get in the way of love. And even peace can get in the way of love. Let's think about each of these. The first one I said was comparison. Paul writes, love does not envy or boast. Right? Envy and boasting, these are comparison terms. When we're either envious or boastful, we're engaged in the game of comparison. Now, why does that make love almost impossible when we're involved in the, ga- in the game of comparison? Well, when we're envious of somebody, we feel like they have everything we want. Right? Maybe they have the talents. Maybe they have the money. Maybe they have the relationships. They, f- they just seem like life is easy for them. How are we going to be patient and kind to that person? Right? We're going to think, I don't need to be patient and kind to you. You need to be patient and kind to me. When we're envious of somebody, we're unable to love them. But then you go to the other side, and we boast. That's when we're proud. When we're proud, we're not looking at somebody else and saying, oh, I really wish I had what you had. No, we're saying, I wish you were like me. Right? I wish you worked harder or, 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 or tried more or did what I did to get here. And so if envy causes self-pity, I think boasting causes self-promotion. And how are we patient and kind with somebody that we feel like, you know, if they just worked a little harder or done a little better, they could be where we're at. And so it's hard to be patient and kind. It's hard to be loving when we're, content, when we're um, constantly comparing ourselves to the other person. Because we're, we're gauging, do I, do I owe this person love? Have they earned love? And the answer will always come back no in that case. The second thing that can get in the way of love is not just comparison, but it's also knowledge. And Paul says love is not arrogant or rude. We all know people who, they're not wrong, but if we're honest, they're just colossal jerks, right? Like somehow their correctness has empowered them to be mean. Knowledge can get in the way of love. Now, earlier in this letter, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is, is dealing with this very problem in the church. Now, this might be surprising to you, but in, in the church in Corinth, they were split there was a decision that needed to be made, and some people thought one thing should happen, and the other people thought that, that the opposite decision should be made. Right? We don't know anything about that. Um, yes, we do, right? We, we live this all the time. The issue for them, though, was something that's a little bit different. Uh, the issue was whether or not they should eat meat that had been offered to idols. And uh, the church was broken. The church was, was torn about which one should we do. Because there were some people who... They had been worshipers of that God. They had served that God in that way, and so they didn't want to eat the meat because it reminded them of how they had worshipped all those years before. And so they felt guilty for doing it. 
And then there was another side of the church who said, it's just meat, it's not a big deal. And uh, so the church was divided. And if you read this, this is chapters 8 through 11, it's probably my favorite passage in Scripture. The, the, the theological astute came out strong. And they did some incredible theology. And this isn't Paul we're speaking about. This is the congregation at Corinth, first century, incredible theology. They had these great theological tweets. If you look in the ESV, they're all in quotation marks. They said things like this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Right? They're saying, God has given us all of these things. This meat was given to us by the Lord. You should enjoy it and quit making such a big deal about it. Then they went on to say, there are no gods but God. Right? Like, yes, it was offered to an idol, but that God doesn't exist. Only God exists. So eat the meat. And they would say, all things are lawful. Meaning like, look, as we stand before Christ, He has given us all things. We can do this. We can eat this meat. And it is an incredibly impressive list. And they're all completely right. And yet Paul said the result of their knowledge was this. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother from whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Do you see how knowledge can get in the way of love? All of a sudden, our correctness is the, 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 the hill that we are ready to die on. And Paul corrects them with this kind of tweet of his own when he says, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, this is probably one of our chief issues, our biggest challenges to love. And it's here, it's alive in our culture, in the Western world, and it's alive in our churches, it's alive in our own hearts. Often we think that our biggest calling, our highest calling, is to be right is to police others and to troll each other and to destroy anything that we deem as wrong or weak. And when we have made that our calling, we have left the way of love. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. A lot can get in the way, right, of being patient and kind. Comparison, when we're envy or boastful, can get in the way. Knowledge can, boast, can get in the way. Paul doesn't stop there. He also says self-centeredness can get in the way. This is verse 5. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Do you know who's probably the worst at loving others? Who is just completely horrible at loving other people? I think it's babies. Babies are horrible at loving others. They're completely selfish. right? They don't care if it's 2 a.m. In the, mo- in the morning and mama hadn't hit REM sleep in two weeks. They will scream their heads off. If they're hungry, if they're gaseous, if they have a wet diaper, if they see their hand and it moves in front of their face, they don't care. They just insist on their own way, right? They scream their heads off until you get take care of them. But we're patient and kind with them because they're babies. And everything is a life and death situation to them. Often, though, in our cultures, don't we act like babies? We think everything is about us. You just think about when somebody cuts you off in traffic, or you see them coming, you cut them off in traffic. What are we saying? We're like a big toddler saying, me first, me first. Right? Self-centeredness can get in the way of love. If I'm worried most about myself, my success, my pleasure, my comfort, my future, my happiness, my whatever, 
if that's what I am running everything through, a grid of how this is going to affect me in the moment, that doesn't leave a lot of room for you. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Comparison gets in the way. Knowledge gets in the way. Self-centeredness gets in the way. And lastly, peace can actually get in the way of love. Verse 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. See, biblical love is not devoid or divorced from truth which you may have thought when I was talking about knowledge earlier. Love actually rejoices in truth. Love loves obedience. Love loves holiness. It wants to see wholeness in other people. But sometimes our desire for peace, our desire for for there not to be any conflict, for there not to be anything that's rocking the boat, we're not loving. We avoid hard issues. We avoid conflict in the name of love. But if it's producing wrongdoing, then it's not love. And just as knowledge can get in the way, so can peace. And verse 7 summarizes this. It says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. When you put it like that, Paul, love is hard. It's incredibly difficult to walk in the way of love. It is obviously that this is going to require selflessness, time, humility, sacrifice, emotional energy and toil, and a whole lot of courage and self-restraint. And so thinking of the way of love, are you growing in love for God's people? What's the result of your spiritual? How are you doing? Is this your habit? to be selfless and sacrificial with your time and emotional energy, humble, patient, courageous with others? Or is your habit of your heart most likely to be self-protected, to be proud, to be cut off, to maybe be slothful in your emotional energy, afraid of conflict and comparative and self-centered? Right. With all of that, describing the way of love, we've got to ask, how in the world do we walk in that? Where do we get the power to love like this? The type of love that we've been talking about this morning isn't something that you can just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and go out there and just be more loving. This type of love that we're talking about, it flows out of our faith in Christ and our hope in God. And that's why we had to save this topic for last. Faith, hope, and love are the three chief characteristics. They are bound together. They belong to one another. You can't rip them from each other. And love flows out of our faith. Love like this flows out of our hope in Christ. When I uh, lived in St. Louis, at a pastor. He had this quote, and I don't know if it was original to him or if it was somebody else and he never quoted the, the, the author, but... The quote is printed on the front of your order of worship, and I think it's worth either writing down or putting to memory. And he would always say this, the Christian lives in the present. Right? That's the only place we can live. In the present, right now, today. We live in the present. How? Off the fat of the future because of the past. We live in the present. Right? We're able to love and to walk in the way of love today. Why? Off the fat of the future, that's our hope. God's promises, 
in God's presence that we talked about before. Why? Because of the past. Because of all that Christ has done for us and to us and with us, our faith. So how does our faith and our hope empower us to love? Well, let's start with faith. I think faith gives us the reasons that we have to love. You know, earlier in the series, I defined faith as a deep conviction. It's something that it's a conviction that you have that is based in reality. It has reasons that then propels you into some action. That's faith. It's both a noun and a verb. It's a noun. It has some content to it, and it's a verb. It's something that you do. How does our faith empower us to love? As an RUF pastor, I work with college students. And so I spend a lot of my time with 18 to 22-year-olds grabbing cups of coffee. And it's a way that I can meet with them one-on-one to love them. But as you might guess, I'm human. And there's a lot of things that can get in the way. I don't always want to go to those meetings. Sometimes, maybe there's something else that I would rather be doing at the moment. Or maybe there's a conversation that I need to have with that student that, to be honest, I don't want to have that conversation. I'd rather, I'd rather not. Or maybe I'm just tired and I want to go home and this is going to be a difficult time. And so I started doing something a few years ago. Whenever I would walk to one of these meetings, I would rehearse my faith. I would remind myself of, of who I am meeting and why I'm, I'm doing it. And not so much like, Oh, I'm meeting Susie, and I'm going to try to make this conversation happen. Not that, but bigger. Who they were before God. Pretend with me that I'm meeting a Christian student named Sarah. I would say to myself as I walked to the meeting and was praying, I would say, Sarah is made in the image of God. Not only that, she's a blood-bought lamb of God. Jesus knows her, and Jesus has died on the cross for her. She is a precious and beloved daughter of the King. And the Holy Spirit dwells inside of her. And for this moment, God has sent me as a pastor to sit with her. And so for this next hour, Sarah is the most important person in the world to me. She has my full attention. Meditating on that truth, on my faith, the content of it, would change me. It would help me to be able to love in those moments. Do you see how faith can give us the power to love? The Christian lives in the present because of the past. Our faith challenges how we think or act or view others. Our faith gives us the reasons to love. And one of those reasons is that Jesus has loved us in this way. Remember on the night when he died, he told us this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by all this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so our faith is attached to our love and it empowers us by giving us reasons. What about hope? How does our hope empower us to love today? One of the things that makes love so difficult is that whenever we are in a situation that requires love, it throws us into this kind of existential math equation. We're always thinking, what is this going to cost me? Because love costs us. And it often feels like a debit into our account. I want to say yes to this thing, but love is going to require me to say no. I don't want to do that. It's going to cost me. 
Or maybe I would rather say no to this thing, but now I've got to say yes to this thing because of love. That's going to cost me too. Love is a demand on us. And what we'll see is that if our hope, our greatest hope, the thing that we groan for, the thing that we long for, the, the, the fantasy that plays out in our head is comfort or respect or power or ease or security or pleasure, then loving other people is always going to feel like a debit on our account. It's going to feel like it is a threat to our hope, to those needy and wrong and sinful or lazy people that we'd rather just not love at all. It's going to threaten my hope, so why would I do that? But the Christian's hope isn't threatened by love. Our hope actually empowers us to love. Think about this. Do you remember the story that Jesus told about uh, is the parable of the man who found a hidden treasure? It says this guy was just walking through a field and somehow he, he trips over this you know, huge treasure. And so he digs a hole, he covers it back up, and then he runs off and he goes home and he, he has this huge estate sale. Right? He sells everything that he has so that he can get the money to go buy the field and get the treasure. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this. The Christian is somebody who sees the kingdom of God as this hidden treasure of untold worth. And even though there is a cost to following Christ, like the guy had to go sell everything he had, what we get is not even, does not even compare. All the good the world gives us is just the first fruits of the kingdom. And so the Christian waits and invests in the kingdom of God, knowing how good it is. And so the Christian can live how? Off the fat of the future, our hope. Right? God's promises to us of what, how he will redeem and restore things. And also his promises to us to be with us. And when we have our hope there, it changes how we think about love. These costly acts of love, they, they, they still take something from us, but instead of being debits to our hope, they're actually credits. It's like an investment. Right? Whenever you make an investment you lose that thing. It, it does hurt. It's costly. But you make it because you know, in the, you make it in the hope of what it's actually going to bring you. That's how our hope changes love. Because we know that as we invest in love and walk in the way of love, that it is preparing us for what the Bible will call an eternal weight of glory. It is shaping us. That even though they're painful, love is painful, it is not a threat to our hope. They are actually investments in it. They are investments in our character, shaping us, preparing us for the new heavens and the new earth. It's investments in our holiness, or it's investments in another person made in the image of God. So the Christian lives in the present off the fat of the future because of the past. Love is, is difficult. It's hard to walk in the way of love. But our faith and our hope empower us to do it. You know, contrary to popular opinion, love is not something that we passively fall into or out of. I know that I have never, ever passively fallen into being patient and kind. I have fallen in accidentally a lot of times to being envious of what others have. I've been quick to shout off a rude comment or mumble it under my breath. And on most occasions, I've insisted on my own way. I, I have fallen into avoiding conflict I have not fallen into love. But the beauty of it, if we're here this morning and you are a Christian and you are in Christ, and guess what? You have been loved in just the way that Paul talks about. 
You have been loved with this intentional, humble, thoughtful, other-centered type of love. We love because He first loved us. And so as you try to walk in the way of love, don't do it out of just guilt or shame or a duty. But we walk empowered by our faith of what Christ has done for us, and we do it empowered by our hope of what God has promised for us. We love because He first loved us. And if you're here this morning and you're just experiencing Christianity, here's what I want you to know. This is where it begins for us. Christians are not meant to just be a people of love and to try really hard to love one another. It begins with God's great love for us. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, than a man lays down his life for his friends. And Jesus has done that because he loves us. And Jesus is ready and faithful to save you of your sins. And so if you want to know and feel God's love for you, then do what Christians have been doing throughout the centuries. We tell God all the reasons why He shouldn't love us. It's called confession. And what we receive from Him is His grace. He says, I know, and I have made a way for you in Christ. And He pours out His love for us. What are Christians like? They are people of faith. They are people of hope. And they are people of love. Faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your great love that you have for us. Lord, from beginning to end of the Bible, there is one God. God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who desires that we know him now, and walk in His ways. And Lord, as we come to Your ways, we, we come regularly with the realization that it's really hard. And we're a long way off. That what You call us to do is something very simple like being patient and kind. That we have a lot of road bumps. A lot of things that get in the way of that. And we have a hard time navigating life in a broken world. Oh, that was easy. And so, Lord, as, as we probably all think about ways that we need to walk in love today, in the present, Lord, would those things be transformed in our hearts? As we think about our faith, what you've done, how you've loved us, how you're preparing and equipping us, but also, Lord, I hope that we have, that we don't have to white-knuckle life and get every little drop out of it, because we have hope in you, a promise of a restored world. And we have the promise that you are with us, even in the suffering now. And so, Lord, we claim your promises and your, and, your, and your word. And we ask for your help and your grace and your mercy. Renew us, restore us to walk in love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.